0: fellow teachers, and welcome to Teaching with Power. This is Ben Wilcox, and I want you to know that I always look forward to spending this time with you in the scriptures each week. And today we're going to be discussing Doctrine and Covenants section 45. Now this podcast is actually the audio to my videos that I produce on my YouTube channel, Teaching with Power. So if you hear me referring to visuals and you'd like to see what I'm referring to, I encourage you to check out the video presentation on YouTube. My goal with these lessons is not just to give you insight into the scriptures, but also give you ideas and materials that are going to help you teach those insights to other people in relevant and meaningful ways. So, grab your scriptures and your marking pencils. It's time to dig deep. Well, this is a rare week in the Come, Follow Me schedule. Just one single section. Now, it's a big section, but I'm thrilled about this because it's going to allow us to really dig deep and focus on the doctrines of the second coming. And if you can recall the lesson that we had all the way back in section one, you're going to remember that one of the major purposes of the entire Doctrine and Covenants is to help us to be prepared for the second coming. And once again, the section heading is going to do an excellent job of providing context and setting up the revelation that follows. So read it to yourself and see what phrases you would pull out that throw light on the purpose of section 45. What is it going to do for us? Well, it's going to help us to not be deceived by false reports and foolish stories. There's a lot of that in our world today, in particular about the second coming. This section is going to help Encourage us to investigate the work and embrace the faith. Investigate and embrace. That's what God wants all of us to do, regardless of whether we've been a member of the church our whole lives or you were just baptized last week. Maybe we've investigated it or we know it, but we have yet to embrace it, to really bring it right down into our hearts. And finally, these things are meant to bring us joy by the end of our lesson my hope is that you feel that joy when it comes to the return of our savior jesus christ section 45 is a joyful section and to get us into it for an icebreaker i sometimes like to pull out an alarm clock as an object lesson and it's kind of fun to have one of those old-fashioned looking ones and i'll put a link to one in the description if you're interested but then i ask my students If they've ever slept through something important, or they missed out on something great because they forgot to set an alarm or put a reminder somewhere, and I know that I've done this before. Once I was supposed to catch an early flight to join my family on vacation, and I failed to set an alarm the night before. So when I woke up, with great dread and regret, I realized that I was not going to get to my flight on time. And it was a horrible feeling. Now, luckily, I was able to catch a flight later that day. But that ended up costing me some vacation time with my family. Now, you may also want to ask them if they're fond of the snooze button. And has that ever gotten them into trouble? Have they missed the bus or, or been late to work because of the snooze button? You can then transition to the scriptures by saying that section 45 is going to teach us about an event that we don't want to miss. And what is that event, according to section 45, verse 16? The event is meeting the Savior in glory at His second coming. We want to make sure that we're awake and ready for that great day. And hopefully we've listened to the wake-up call of His voice before that day ever comes. If we're not ready, or if we've hit the snooze button too many times, then I'm afraid that that day is going to fill us with dread and regret. And like so many other sections in the Doctrine and Covenants, a major theme is that of listening or hearkening. We saw that in the very first section of the Doctrine and Covenants, in the very first word. And we've seen it in many sections since. Most recently, we saw it in section 43, where the Lord listed all the voices that he, he tries to get people to listen and to come follow him. Now in section 45, I see three natural divisions, each with its own related but distinct message. You've got verses 1 through 16, verses 17 through 59, and verses 60 through 75. The message of the first 16 verses Is a plea to listen so for a search activity I want you to find how many times and ways the Lord asks us to listen to him and let's see in verse 1 you've got hearken and again he says hearken and then give ear in verse 2 hearken in verse 3 listen in verse 6 Hearken, listen together, hear my voice. In 11, hearken together. And in verse 15, hearken and I will speak unto you. So you can see he says that over and over again in this section. Listen to me, please. Now let's go through and find all the reasons why we should listen to him. And in a class, I would assign each of my students a number and give them a verse or verses to study, looking for a reason for why we should listen to Christ. And then call for volunteers or call on some of those individuals to share their findings with the class. Jesus is going to offer us a whole bundle of different reasons to listen to him. So, number one, listen because I am the creator. I am the maker. We've spoken about that idea before and and here he's using it again. You've got to listen to me because I invented you and this world and everything on it. I understand it and I understand you. I know what makes you tick and I know what will make you happy. So trust me. In verse two, listen because the consequences of not listening are so severe. Lest death shall overtake you and your souls not saved. I don't want you to be surprised by my coming or your own death and not be prepared for it. Something that we should keep in mind is that teachings on the second coming are for more than just the people that will actually be alive on the earth when it happens. If that's all it applied to, then that's a lot of space in the scriptures dedicated to a very small minority of God's children. No, the teachings of the second coming are for all ages of mankind. Our death is a type of second coming for us personally. Now, that's not to discount the opportunities that we have for repentance in the spirit world. But death marks an important milestone in our eternal progress. What we do in this life matters and will have a bearing on our eternal future. So he says, listen before I come. Or listen, lest death overtake you in an hour when ye think not, and your soul not be saved. Do you remember the preacher from Pollyanna? Death comes unexpectedly. (laughs) Now, Now, it is true, though. We don't know the exact moment of Christ's return, and we don't know the day and hour of our death either. So the implied message? The time to hearken is always now. Verses 3 through 5. Let's take some time on these couple of verses. I really love them. One of Jesus Christ's titles is the advocate with the Father. Jesus is our advocate, our lawyer in a sense. But notice that he's not our advocate to the Father or in front of the Father, but with the Father. And that's significant. We've got to be careful with this imagery. I really don't picture the final judgment being like a courtroom, that God is sitting there on the stand demanding justice while Jesus is pleading from the defendant's bench for mercy. Jesus is not all mercy and the Father all justice. Both Jesus and the Father represent the perfect balance between both principles. And I don't think that Jesus has to try and convince God to be merciful to us. I think the focus here is on us. Jesus isn't telling us what he's going to say so that God will be convinced of something, but so that we will be convinced of something. That he is on our side and that this is about us. Look at how verse 3 begins. He's saying, listen to your Savior plead for you. This is another reason we can trust him because he loves us. He loves us enough to plead for us. He has our best interest at heart. Jesus and the Father are looking at each other with a knowing look and glance, hoping that we will overhear the conversation. And we should picture ourselves in the background listening to them. And we hear Jesus say the following words, Father, behold the sufferings and death of him who did no sin, in whom thou wast well pleased. Behold the blood of thy Son which was shed, the blood of him whom thou gavest that thyself might be glorified. Wherefore, Father, spare these, my brethren, that believe on my name, that they may come unto me and have everlasting life. Jesus is, is looking at us as he's saying these words. Can you imagine how it would feel to hear Jesus say those words about you? And Put your own name in there and notice how it affects your heart. In my mind's eye, I imagine hearing Jesus say, You love me, Father, and because of that love that you bear to me, I bear that love to Ben. You know that he believes in me and you. Father, I suffered and I died for Ben, and I loved him enough to suffer and die. And he loves us, Father, so please spare him. Give unto him eternal life. We both know that he is guilty but he believes in us and he loves us. I think that only the hardest of hearts wouldn't be softened by that plea. And I don't really think that this pleading is a one-time thing. It's not that it only happens at some future court date. This pleading is constant. And that's why he says in verse six, hear my voice while it is called today. This truth is for us here today, not just in the future not just for those that are actually on the earth when the second coming occurs. It's something that he wants us to always keep in mind. I'm afraid that many of us may spend a lot of our time condemning ourselves for our weaknesses, our imperfections, our indiscretions. But there's the Savior constantly pleading for us, saying, Father, spare Ben the pain of constant condemnation. Help him to know of our love for him and our mercy and our grace that's being offered. Help him to feel good about his progress because he loves us and believes in us. Wouldn't that help you to put your trust in his instruction and his wisdom? Verse seven, listen because I am great. There is a little bit of that theme in these verses and and it can stand as another reason. I don't think the major thrust of God's pleadings is is that we should listen to him because he's in charge and he's so powerful. But there is a bit of that. Remember, he's giving us a whole list of reasons for why we should listen. And this is one of them. He is the beginning and the end of all. Doesn't it make sense to place our trust in a being of such immense power and glory? Verse 8, listen Because listening will lead to great blessings for you. You will do and witness miracles. You will become my sons and daughters. You will gain eternal life, the greatest of all gifts. So much is at stake here. The rewards are endless. Verse 9. Listen, because what I have will give you light to guide you, a standard to follow, and a messenger to listen to. This everlasting covenant I have is going to give you direction, understanding, and guidance. The world doesn't really have a standard for us to rally to. If they do, it's that there are no absolute standards anymore. The world today has destroyed all the capitals. What do I mean by that? The world doesn't believe in capital T, truth, anymore. Capital M, morality. Capital A, accountability, or capital R, right. It's all relative. There are no standards. Everybody just creates their own standard. It's like George Bernard Shaw said, the only golden rule is that there is no golden rule. Everybody gets to decide for themselves what's right and what's wrong. If there's only one capital that the world seems to stand for, it's capital T, tolerance which does and should have a place in our society. But if it's the only flag that's waved, or the flag that's raised far higher than any other, with which they can use as a club to beat down and silence all the others, then I believe that we're gonna find our society in a very undesirable and dangerous position. So instead, we look to the light, we rally around the standard, and we listen to the messengers that are sent from a loving Heavenly Father to help us. Verses 10 and 11. Listen, because it just makes sense to. He says, I will reason with you as with men in days of old. I will show unto you my strong reasoning. I really love that. This is a great model of the very first principle of priesthood leadership. And do you know what that is? You're going to find it in section 121 where God reveals the principles of righteous priesthood authority. And what's the first word on that list? Is it loyalty? Is it strength? Is it intimidation? No, the first principle of righteous priesthood leadership is persuasion. We are to lead by persuasion. We reason with those that we lead. We impart of our wisdom and try to help them see the best course of action for themselves that's going to bring them and all the most benefit. God is not a do what I say because I say so kind of God. He reasons with us. This whole first section is evidence of that. Before he teaches us anything about the second coming, he's going to plead for us to listen to him. He's going to, verse 11, Show unto us his wisdom. Verses 11 through 14. And notice the title that he uses for himself here. He calls himself the God of Enoch. Let me show unto you even my wisdom, the wisdom of him whom ye say is the God of Enoch, and his brethren who were separated from the earth and were received unto myself a city reserved until a day of righteousness shall come. And that's the only time in all the scriptures that he calls himself the God of Enoch. Now, why? Because listening to his wisdom can help you to create and live in a unified society, a Zion, one mind and one heart society, a society that was so righteous that it was separated from the earth and received unto the Lord himself. And a lot of individuals A lot of religious figures and governments have tried to do this throughout the ages, to create a Zion-like community. But have they, or do they have, the wisdom and the reason to create what Enoch created? Probably not. Only God can create Zion through his wisdom. It's never going to happen with just the wisdom of man. This kind of place and circumstances is something that has been sought for by all holy men and women, but they've never been able to find it. And they confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. Now that's worth our contemplation here. How should we feel in the world? We should feel like strangers, which means foreigners, or pilgrims, wanderers looking for a more holy place. We should not feel at home in a world of wickedness and abomination. And That may be a good question to ask yourself. Do I feel comfortable in this world? Do I feel like I belong? According to this, hopefully not. Not belonging can actually be a good thing. If the entertainment, the values, the music, the language, the environment, the trends of the world make you feel uncomfortable, then that's probably a good sign. If you find yourself thinking and feeling, there has to be something better than this. Or, I want to find a better place, a more holy place than this. I want to live my life with 13th article of faith kind of people. The kind of people that seek after that which is virtuous, lovely, praiseworthy, or of good report. If those are our desires, that's good. However, if you're comfortable in the world, If you find yourself drawn to that environment and language and entertainment, constantly looking over your shoulder with longing for their standards and behaviors, then that may be a sign that you've slipped a little too far from the iron rod and you're stumbling your way to the great and spacious building. So listen to him, because listening will eventually lead you to find that kind of world and society, to a place where you feel at home. And he's going to return to this idea in the last portion of section 45. This is one of the great promises of this section. Listening to Christ will lead you to Zion. Verses 15 and 16 are going to reiterate his plea to hearken to his reasoning as he promises to teach us more plainly about his coming. So, the truth here, and I'll keep it simple there are so many good reasons. To listen to Christ. It just makes sense. And so I hope we will. And do you sense the Lord's care and concern and love here? He's just given us 16 verses of pleading and persuasion and reasoning before he ever even gets started in on the second coming stuff. You've got the carrot, you've got the stick, you've got the authority card, you've got reasoning and persuasion and love all done in the hopes that we will listen to him. Listen to me, he pleads, because I'm the creator, because the ramifications are too great, because I love you, because the blessings are priceless, because it just makes sense. Because if you listen, you will one day find yourself in a place where you belong. Listen because I always keep my promises. And hopefully, with those 16 verses, he's got our attention. He's convinced us to listen. He's woken us up with the alarm of his voice. And he says, okay, now let's talk about the second coming. So verses 17 through 59 cover that truth. And really has the meat of the section. So there are three questions that I want to talk about with you now. The wrong question, a better question, and the best question. These verses in the middle are addressing a very specific question that's asked by the Lord's disciples during Christ's mortal ministry. And section 45 is a clear companion section to Matthew 24, which is the chapter from the New Testament that Joseph Smith so extensively retranslated that it ended up as its own book in the Pearl of Great Price called Joseph Smith Matthew. That's the conversation that's being referred to here. In Joseph Smith Matthew, the disciples asked two questions of Jesus. And they are the two questions that a lot of people today still ask about the second coming. In fact, I bet you can guess what the first question is. What do you think is the very first question that comes to people's minds regarding the second coming of Christ? And and here it is in Joseph Smith Matthew, verse 4. And Jesus left them and went upon the Mount of Olives... And as he sat upon the Mount of Olives, the disciples came unto him privately, saying, Tell us when shall these things be which thou hast said concerning the destruction of the temple and the Jews? And what is the sign of thy coming and of the end of the world or the destruction of the wicked, which is the end of the world? What's the first question? When? When will it happen? And that question has been debated, speculated on, and worried about For ages. How does the Lord usually answer that question? Here's how he answered it in Joseph Smith Matthew. But of that day and hour, no one knoweth. No, not the angels of God in heaven, but my Father only. The Lord is always going to answer that question with ambiguity. No matter how much we prod or cajole him, he's just not interested in giving us the specifics of that answer. We're not intended to know that answer. But some people think that he's hidden the answer in cryptic phrases or Bible codes so that only the religious elite or the scripture scholar can figure them out. But simply stated, the fact of the matter is that no man knoweth. He's not going to tell us the due date. He doesn't want to encourage procrastination or inspire apathy because, hey, he's not coming for another thousand years or so he's never going to give a straight answer to that question. And a perfect example of this comes in section 130, because even Joseph Smith couldn't help but ask that question. And how did God answer him? I was once praying very earnestly to know the time of the coming of the Son of Man, when I heard a voice repeat the following, Joseph, my son, if thou livest until thou art 85 years old, thou shalt see the face of the Son of Man. Therefore, let this suffice and trouble me no more on this matter. I was left thus without being able to decide whether this coming referred to the beginning of the millennium or to some previous appearing or whether I should die and thus see his face. I believe the coming of the Son of Man will not be any sooner than that time. Well, don't you love that? How's that for an ambiguous response? And you may even sense a bit of exasperation in the Lord's voice. Joseph, if you live to be 85, you'll see me. Now don't ask me any more about it. And then Joseph is just sitting there wondering what that means and how to interpret it. And This is a perfect example of the great vagueness offered when it comes to the question of when. Interestingly enough, he doesn't even mention that question here in section 45. Perhaps that's an indication that he just doesn't feel that it's very important for us to know. There is wisdom and a purpose for us not knowing the answer to that question. It's the wrong question to ask. But now for a question that apparently it is okay to ask. A better question. As an icebreaker, I do the following. I give them a signs quiz and ask them if they know what the following signs mean. And sometimes I'll do it as a handout like this. And Here are the answers. Electric shock hazard, poison, radioactive, this is a, an interstate sign, for the United States at least, biohazard, recycle, neighborhood watch, and this last one is a dead-end sign that you would only find in Brazil. Now, unless you're from Brazil, you're probably not going to get that one, but it is there just to make a point. And I ask this question, what are the purposes of signs? Well, they protect us from danger by giving us warnings. They give us instruction and they provide order. And signs tell us where we are or where we're going. The signs that Christ provides us with accomplish the same purposes. And in order to understand some of the signs, we've got to have some prior experience or knowledge of their meaning, like the Brazilian sign. If somebody doesn't explain that to you beforehand, you're just not going to get it. The uninformed are going to struggle to interpret them. Now, that's why God gives us the scriptures and chapters like section 45 and the prophets and the spirit to help us. The righteous and those that are watching will recognize them. And as I said in a previous lesson, I feel that the power of the signs comes more in their figurative, spiritual, and symbolic meanings, rather than their literal. And that's not to say that there aren't literal fulfillments of these prophecies, but I always seem to find more relevance and meaning in the figurative. So what is the better question that we can ask regarding the second coming? See if you can find it in verse 16. It's the question the disciples asked Christ back in the New Testament. What are the signs of your coming, Lord? And he is going to answer that second question in great detail. The Lord wants us to be watching for the signs as indicators of his nearing arrival. Though we don't know the exact day and hour, his coming is not going to be a huge surprise either for those that know what to look for. So what are the signs? Let's take a quick look. And the likening of the scriptures in this section is going to occur throughout. For each of the signs, it's good to ask your students if they see any evidence of these things in our current world. And if you wanted to add an activity element to it, you could do a fill-in-the-blank challenge. You give them a phrase from one of the signs with a word missing and see who can find the answer first. And then you could throw out a little treat to whoever identifies it. But they have to tell you what verse the answer's in because that's going to discourage blind guessing. So here we go. The sun shall be blank and the moon be turned to blood and the stars fall from heaven. The word is darkened from verse 42. And is there any evidence of this sign in our current world? I talked about my perspective on this prophecy back in section 29. To me, this is a reference to the spiritual darkness of the latter days. That the light of the gospel, the spirit, love and truth will be difficult for many to find. I believe this prophecy is being fulfilled as we speak. Next, blank shall abound. The word is iniquity from verse 27. and Have you seen evidence of this? Crime, sexual promiscuity, pornography, violence, immodesty, dishonesty, hate, lust, vulgarity, war, and incivility are everywhere. Year by year, the world seems to be increasingly losing its moral bearings. Next, there shall be blank also in diverse places and many desolations. The word is earthquakes in verse 33. Is there evidence of that sign? And though it may be true that actual earthquakes seem to be increasing in frequency and intensity, I'm much more concerned with the symbolic earthquakes of the last days. One of the things that makes earthquakes so dangerous is that things fall on you. If you're standing out in the middle of an open field during an earthquake, you probably don't have much to worry about, do you? You could just enjoy the ride. But how do people typically die from earthquakes? Things collapse. They fall on them and crush them. And perhaps this prophecy is being fulfilled as we speak, as morals crumble, and families and marriages, as standards collapse and governments and nations, as the innocent are crushed by the weight of hatred, poverty, racism, war, confusion, and temptation. Morally speaking, the world is an unstable, earthquake crumbling place. Next, this people shall be destroyed and blank among all nations. The word is scattered, and it's found in verse 19. Now, verses 18 through 24 describe Jesus' prophecies concerning the future of the Jewish nation, since that was fresh on the minds of the disciples that were asking him the initial question. And these prophecies have been fulfilled. The temple in Jerusalem was destroyed, and the Jews were scattered among all nations. But the Lord promises that they will be gathered once again, in verse 25. And that could be referring to the Jews returning to Israel and establishing a nation there, or more broadly speaking, It could also refer to the worldwide gathering of the extended house of Israel through Christ's church in the latter days. The gathering of Israel is a sign that we are living in the days preceding the second coming of Christ. And in these next verses, you're going to see the phrase, the times of the Gentiles appear quite a few times. And indeed, the Lord would restore his church through the Gentile nations. Next, men's hearts shall blank them. The word is fail in verse 26. Now, I don't think that's a reference to cardiac arrest, but a reference to the failing of love and hope and faith in the hearts of men. And why will they fail? Take a look at Luke 21, 26. Men's hearts failing them for fear and for looking after those things which are coming on the earth. For the powers of heaven shall be shaken. The last days can be a terrifying time to live. Some are going to lose their faith in humanity and their hope for a bright future. After the horrors of World War II and the Holocaust, many in Europe lost their faith in God and the gospel. This prevalence of disillusionment or hopelessness or discouragement is a sign of the times. Have you seen any evidence of that? Next, blood and fire and vapors of... The word is smoke in verse 41. And it sounds terrible, doesn't it? Is there evidence of this in our world? Blood and fire and smoke are all indicators of destruction. And this can certainly be both literal and symbolic. There's more than enough examples of literal blood and fire and smoke in our world. But there's also the spiritual destruction of faith and testimony and hope. Next, blank and rumors of blank and the whole earth shall be in commotion. It's the same word in both blanks. The word is war in verse 26. Evidence? Now that can refer to any number of conflicts. Since the Restoration, our world has been embroiled in many armed conflicts. Rumors of wars refers to the threats of war or the possibility of war. The years that we refer to as the Cold War are a good example of this. But then you've got other types of wars to consider. We have gang wars, drug wars, conflicts in politics, race relations, conflicts in marriages and families, and religious disputes. Above all, the war for the souls of men that started with the war in heaven and has now become war on earth. This spiritual war for our agency has been waged since the beginning. So great and widespread conflict are a sign that the Lord is coming soon. Next, they shall see an overflowing scourge, for a desolating blank shall cover the land. The word is sickness in verse 31. And I'm not so sure that's referring to any specific virus or pandemic or outbreak, although I suppose it could. I believe the overflowing scourge and sickness are war and hatred, as we discussed in a previous sign. As you read the book of Revelation, it becomes fairly clear that war is the major cleansing agent of the last days, the major form of destruction of the wicked. God doesn't really need to destroy the wicked because they just destroy themselves and each other. And we'll see this more clearly in the last portion of section 45, where Zion becomes the only safe and peaceful place on the earth, while the rest of the world self-destructs and tears itself apart through conflict. And now for the sign that worries me the most, the most disturbing of the signs. The blank of men will wax cold. And The word is love from verse 27. And how's that for scary? This to me is a more frightening sign than wars and earthquakes and famines. When people stop loving each other, things deteriorate quickly. Political division, racism, A casual attitude towards divorce, mass shootings, bullying, and a vicious incivility prevalent in much of social media are all evidence of the love of men waxing cold. Remember what Jesus said was the greatest indicator that we were his disciples, how people would really know and recognize his followers if they had love one to another. And as the world grows more wicked, the contrast is going to become more and more apparent. The love of men will wax cold and hatred will increase. Well, those are some of the signs that are going to indicate that the second coming is drawing near. And it's not that the Lord is sending these things or causing them, but he's drawing our attention to the conditions of the world that are going to precede his impending arrival. So the truth, God reveals signs of his coming so that we may know that his coming is nigh and to help us know that his promises to the righteous will soon be fulfilled now that also implies something another purpose for the signs why would he want us to know that his coming is nigh that it's getting close i think he's hoping that we'll ask the best question that we can ask concerning the second coming the most important question and though the disciples didn't ask that question he spends a lot of time answering it can anybody guess what it is he wants us to know when his coming is getting close so that we'll do something about it, so that we'll be ready for it. The best question you can ask is, how can I prepare myself for the second coming? What Christ wants most for us is that we be prepared. He's not just sitting up there ready to light matches to the world. And that's why he sends signs and prophets and seems to delay his coming. He's hoping that people will believe and change and prepare because if we're prepared, Neither of the other two questions matter as much. It doesn't matter when he comes, and it doesn't matter how obvious or frequent the signs become, because we're going to be ready. Unfortunately, many people have spent countless hours researching, studying, predicting, and speculating about the date and the signs of the coming of the Lord. And wouldn't our time be much better spent studying and pondering on how to prepare ourselves for that day and then acting on it? I think so. So, we're going to spend the rest of the lesson learning what we should do when we see the signs and how we can prepare. And I see three major answers to that question in section 45. Send your students in to find the answers to that question with the following study guide. And there's also a section to take notes on how to do that thing and a liken the scriptures question to consider as well. So, number one from verse 35 be not troubled. When you think about the nature of the signs that we just studied, we shouldn't be surprised by the disciples' reaction. It says in verse 34 that they were troubled by those prophecies. And no kidding, wars, earthquakes, blood, sickness, hate, not the most positive of prospects being described here. And I've often found that a lot of people and students over the years seem to have the same kinds of feelings surrounding the idea of the second coming. They wonder why things have to get so bad before they get better and they may begin to feel discouraged about living in the latter days. The Lord has a special instruction to those that may feel that way. He says, be not troubled. He doesn't want us hiding in the corner and cowering in fear over the calamities of the last days. There is much to celebrate and look forward to as well. God is a great balancer, since the conditions of the latter days are so perilous, He's going to counteract that with the most amazing promises and opportunities as well. We have every reason in the world to be grateful and optimistic about the last days. I like to entitle this section of the lesson with phrases that we find in verses 39 and 62. And read those two verses closely and tell me why we shouldn't be troubled. We shouldn't be troubled because we have so much to look forward to. And because great things await us. There is no need to despair. There's no need to be discouraged. There's no need to be afraid. We can look forth for the great day of the Lord to come because the Lord has so many great things in store for those that love him. Great things in the future when he comes and great things while we wait. So let's go through and search for some of these great things and the promises that we can look forward to. And the section is full of them. In verse 17, There are the three R's. Two of them are stated directly and the other is alluded to. You have redemption, restoration, and the third R is going to be resurrection. It says, you have looked upon the long absence of your spirits from your bodies to be a bondage. What does the Lord promise those souls who long to reunite with their bodies? A glorious resurrection. The Lord will redeem the righteous from their sins, restore all things to their perfect and sanctified state, and resurrect all mankind to come forth and meet God." That sounds like a pretty great thing that awaits us. Verse 28, the fullness of the gospel shall shine forth in darkness. The disciples of Christ in the latter days have the privilege of enjoying the fullness of the gospel. No generation of believers have or will be more blessed or enlightened than the generations preceding the second coming. And just ask yourself, what blessings do we have that no other previous dispensation has fully enjoyed? We have a deeper understanding of gospel doctrine. We have more scripture than any previous generation. We also receive the direction of living prophets every six months in general conference, and even in between through articles in the Liahona and devotionals and face-to-faces trainings. We have access to years of church publications in the palms of our hand and manuals and handbooks and resources. The church has never been more organized and focused than it is now. We've got access to so many temples throughout the world. There aren't many places left where you have to travel that far in order to get to a temple anymore. We have been blessed with great fullness. Verses 44 to 45, we get to see Jesus Christ in the clouds, clothed with power and great glory. Can you imagine that moment in reality? And this isn't a a fictional or imaginary event. There will come a day when Jesus Christ in the flesh will descend from heaven to the earth once again. And what will happen next? Verse 46, wherefore, if you have slept in peace, blessed are you. For as you now behold me and know that I am. Even so shall ye come unto me, and your souls shall live, and your redemption shall be perfected, and the saints shall come forth from the four quarters of the earth. Whether we are alive at the time of his coming, or we died centuries before it, all the righteous are going to take part in that experience. All of his saints will rise to meet him in the clouds. Verse 54, the heathen nations will be redeemed. Those that knew no law shall have part in the first resurrection, and it shall be tolerable for them. And heathen is not used in a derogatory way here. But there are and will be places that did not have the same access to gospel knowledge and blessings and opportunities as others have. And they too can be redeemed. Can you imagine temples dotting the Middle East or Asia or Africa? And this may well happen far before the second coming. But all nations will have the blessings of the fullness of the gospel. 55. Satan shall be bound. And have no place in the hearts of the children of men. And oh, what a relief that's going to be. We no longer have to worry about the influence of the adversary. Satan will become a distant bad memory. And nobody's going to sit around and reminisce about the bad old days when Satan was around. 58. The earth shall be given unto them for an inheritance. And they shall multiply and wax strong. And their children shall grow up without sin unto salvation. What a profound and beautiful promise to parents. And can you imagine having that blessing? I pray every night that my children will be protected from the influence of the world and the adversary. I worry about their future and their faith. But once Christ comes, children are going to grow up in righteousness and light. We're not going to have to filter their phones and monitor the movies they watch and worry about what they're doing with their friends or what they're experiencing at school they'll grow up without sin unto salvation. And 59, the Lord shall be in their midst and his glory shall be upon them and he shall be their king and lawgiver. So Jesus himself will actually be here. We can meet him and talk to him and he'll be our government. And won't that be nice? I look forward to the day when I won't have to worry about politics or what's happening or not happening in Washington. So the truth great things await the righteous so look forward to the second coming with hope and joy can you see why we have so much to look forward to such great things and that's one of the great truths of this section there's no need to be troubled or despair we can remain firm optimists right up to the very day of his coming yes the world is a miserable place in a lot of ways and it's just going to get worse but we can still find joy and hope and love and truth while we wait. There's a word that seems to come up quite a few times in this section, and that word is look. I think the Lord wants us to look for the positive aspects of the last days and not dwell on the negative. So be not troubled. We can be joyful and happy, even in a world of commotion and war and earthquakes and darkness. And to liken the scriptures, Which of the great things most helps you not to be troubled? And another possible teaching suggestion here, there's a great church inspirational message video that's entitled, Men's Hearts Shall Fail Them, with President Nelson. And he tells the story of a time when he was almost in a plane crash and how he was able to still remain calm even though it appeared that he was about to die. It's a very inspiring message and it fits beautifully with this section. And I'll include a link of it here and encourage you to take the time to watch it. The second thing that we can do to be prepared for the second coming is found in verses 56 and 57. And what is it? And at that day when I shall come in my glory, shall the parable be fulfilled which I spake concerning the ten virgins. For they that are wise and have received the truth and have taken the Holy Spirit for their guide and have not been deceived... Verily I say unto you, they shall not be hewn down and cast into the fire, but shall abide the day. What should we do? We should be wise by receiving the truth and taking the Holy Spirit for our guide. We all remember the parable of the ten virgins. And in that parable, there were five foolish virgins and five wise. And what was it that set them apart? The wise had prepared themselves with oil in their lamps. The foolish, on the other hand, had brought none, or had allowed their lamps to go out while waiting. Therefore, when the bridegroom came at midnight, the wise were prepared for the celebration, but the foolish were not, and the door was closed upon them. They knock on the door of the wedding and ask to be let in. But the Lord responds with, Ye know me not. And that's a JST change, by the way, and a very enlightening one at that. It's not, I know you not, but you don't know me. As if to say, Why do you want to take part in my wedding when you never wanted to spend time with me before? You were too busy, too distracted, too focused on yourself, too taken by the things of the world. You don't even know me. The five wise versions had oil, though, and Doctrine and Covenants 45 tells us what the oil represents. It tells us what is going to help us to get to know the bridegroom so that we can be welcomed to the great wedding feast, which is the second coming. The oil is truth. And with that truth, we are able to see our way by the light of the Holy Ghost. Truth is the fuel by which the light of the Spirit burns. So we have to ask ourselves if we have received the truth. Have we listened to the voice? The voice of the Spirit, the voice of the prophets, the voice of the Scriptures. More importantly, have we received it? And we've got to act on it and allow ourselves to be guided by it. The foolish treat the truth in a much different way. And there's evidence of that as you make your way through section 45. There are those that, in verse 6, harden their hearts against the truth. That, in verse 29, receive it not, because they perceive not the light of the Spirit. And they turn their hearts away from me. No wonder their hearts wax cold and harden and fail them. And why do they turn away? Because of the precepts of men. And a precept is a rule or a principle. They want to follow the rules of men because they're easier. They're more seductive or selfish. Verses 49 through 50, there are those that laugh and mock and scorn the truth and those that follow it. And that's one of Satan's major tactics he employs against the truth. Remember the number one activity of choice of those in the great and spacious building. They had nothing better to do than to point the finger of derision at the faithful And usually those that oppose the truth don't want to sit down and have a rational discussion about why you believe or debate the nature of the validity of faith. Their only option is to mock it. You can make anything look foolish by the way that you talk about it. Ask any comedian. And there are also those that watch for iniquity, that spend all of their time looking for the negative, the false, the imperfect. Those that make a man an offender for a word and dredge up any story or quote that they can find that may cast the faithful or the church in a negative light. So, to prepare for the second coming, we must receive the truth and allow ourselves to be guided by the light of the Spirit. Verse 57 promises that those wise souls that do this will abide the day. And I think that can mean two things. Yes, they will abide the actual day of His coming at some future date. But also, they will abide every day All their todays and tomorrows are included in that promise. You will be able to abide whatever the day brings you. So receive the truth, follow the Spirit, and enjoy the wedding. That day when Jesus Christ is reunited with His bride and the church, we're all going to celebrate. Let's not find ourselves on the other side of the door because we were foolish. But let the Lord find your heart willing, your mind ready, and your lamps full. To like in the scriptures, what could you do to more fully receive the truth and follow the Spirit? And our third thing. I've saved the best one for last, in my opinion. And that one's going to take us back to verse 32. What is the instruction that's going to help us to be prepared? Stand in holy places, and you shall not be moved. I believe the word stand here is an active word rather than a passive one. We are to make a stand against the wickedness and the evil of the world in our holy places and not just hide within them. It's our holy places that will provide us with safety and peace and refuge. And what are our holy places? I can think of no better reference that illustrates this than Isaiah four, five through six. He's gonna describe the three holy places of the last days can you find them? And the Lord will create upon every dwelling place of Mount Zion and upon her assemblies a cloud and smoke by day and the shining of a flaming fire by night. For upon all the glory shall be a defense and there shall be a tabernacle for a shadow in the daytime from the heat and for a place of refuge and for a covert from storm and from rain. So did you catch them? You've got Every dwelling place of Mount Zion, so our homes, her assemblies, or any place where saints assemble themselves together, our stakes and churches, seminaries and institutes, the conference center, or any time two or more are gathered together in his name. And third, a tabernacle. Now what was the tabernacle to them? It was the temple. So these are the three holy places from which we must make our stand our homes, our churches, and our temples. And These three locations make up Zion, the ultimate holy place. Remember at the beginning of the section where the Lord referred to the God of Enoch and the city of Zion? That was foreshadowing. God is going to invite the members of his church to create that holy city once again upon the earth. But it's not necessarily going to be one geographical location. It's in all of these places. Wherever you have a home, a church assembly, or a temple, you have Zion. And the blessing of protection is promised for each of those locations. So the truth, if we make a stand for righteousness in our homes, our churches, and our temples, we will be able to abide the calamities and the wickedness of the last days. And to liken the scriptures, how have these three holy places provided safety, peace, and refuge in your life. Well, I think this leads us beautifully into the final portion of section 45. The Lord is going to end with a charge and a promise to his saints. And since they're being asked to stand in holy places, they're going to need to do something first in order to follow that commandment. Look at verses 64 through 71. So in order to stand in holy places, We have to build them first. Zion needed to be built and it's still under construction. They started it back in 1830 and it continues until now. We have holy places to build so that we can stand in them. This is another great thing about living in the latter days. We're going to build a place where people aren't fighting one another, where they don't watch for iniquity, where they don't scorn and they don't solve problems with violence a place where people love each other and where hearts aren't waxing cold. We are going to accomplish something that all righteous and holy men have sought for in the past. We are going to build a place where the holy can say, This is where I belong. I'm not a stranger here. I can raise my children here without sin and trouble. I can feel safe and peaceful and happy here. And the closer we get to the second coming, the more pronounced the differences between Zion and Babylon are going to become. Zion is going to be the last holy place left on earth before Christ comes. And the wicked will look at it with awe and long for what we have. And I love how in verses 69 and 71, that Zion is made up of people from every nation. There is a place for every nation, ethnicity, language, and race in the kingdom of Zion. Every nation in the world has wonderful, good people living in it. Governments and organizations and nations have not been able to figure this one out. The grand dream, how to unite people that are different. The only hope for real world peace that we have is the gospel of Jesus Christ in the holy places of Zion. And This is even true now. Have you ever attended church in a foreign country with people that you didn't even know I bet that you felt an instant sense of brotherhood and comfort and acceptance in that place. And you could be a world away. You may not even speak the language, but you're still going to feel at home. You sing the same songs, hear the same gospel, and feel the same spirit, no matter where you are. And I can attend church in France or Brazil or Nigeria or Canada or Tonga or Singapore, and feel right at home. We may feel like strangers and pilgrims in the world, but in Zion, we're always in a place where we belong. And in it, we sing the songs of everlasting joy. So does this section help you find joy? Does it help you to reject false reports and foolish stories? Does it encourage you to investigate the work and embrace the faith? I pray that it has. I'd like to conclude with the words of Alma, and the way that he felt about waiting for the coming of the Lord, because it so beautifully describes how I feel about it. And now we only wait to hear the joyful news declared unto us by the mouth of angels of his coming. For the time cometh, we know not how soon. Would to God that it might be in my day, but let it be sooner or later, in it I will rejoice. thank you for joining me today and if you're interested in the slide presentation i used here or the handouts that i make or you'd like the lesson plan go to teachingwithpower.com and you'll find links to those resources if you found this lesson helpful please subscribe like make a comment and share it with those that you feel it could help thank you for watching now get out there and teach with power